Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, as the United States marks a quarter of a million people dead from the pandemic, California announces some new restrictions. To talk with us about this latest spike, as well as California's new nighttime curfew, is UCSF Dr. Bob Wachter. He's chair of the Department of Medicine there. He's also got more than 152,000 Twitter followers and counting. Not bad for a political science major turned physician. Dr. Wachter, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. It's great to be here. So let's get right into it. Um, We just saw Dr. Mark Galley, um, the head of Health and Human Services in California, come out and talk about this nighttime curfew. It's going to apply to counties in the purple tier, which is most of the state and most of the state's population. Um, It is going to be between 10 and 5 a.m. It does not apply to essential businesses. I guess what's your thought? Is this something that we've seen work elsewhere? Do you think this is a there's a good reason the state is going down this path? Well, there's a good reason for the state to continue to tighten up. Uh, You know, California has been a relative success story compared to the rest of the country. Our surge currently is not as bad as what they're seeing in the Midwest, but we don't want to be there. And so what we are doing currently is not working. We're still heading north pretty pretty fast in terms of uh, new cases. And so I think what they're trying to do is, you know, is tighten up in a gradual way. And if that's not going to work, then they'll tighten up some more. The issue of whether a curfew or, or stay-at-home order or whatever they're, they're using as the, uh, as the term um, works, is, uh, it's debatable. Uh, there's not great evidence that it's, uh, it's massively effective, but you could see the rationale. If, you know, if people are out and about between 10, a, uh, 10, t- 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., there's a decent chance they're socializing. There's a decent chance there may be alcohol or other substances involved, and that there's nothing about that that will bring out COVID, but it probably means you're less likely to keep your mask on, less likely to pay attention to distance. So it's sort of a graduated step, and it might be a step on the way to something more serious if we don't turn the numbers around. You mentioned the kind of activities we're talking about, 10 a, uh, ten p.m. to 5 a.m. Do you get the sense that this is maybe a bar ban uh, without saying the name? I mean, specifically targeting those kind of activities, people in a closed environment, perhaps drinking, letting their guard down in that way? Yeah, I mean, it's... It, 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 almost doesn't matter whether you're on your way to a bar and uh, or you're on your way to hang out with pals to watch uh, late night TV. It's just the the idea is that, uh, you know, the, the concern is that you're going to be getting together with a fair number of people to socialize and you're going to let your guard down and the guard down is sort of the size of the crowd, the, the lack of masks and the distance. 
And, you know, those are the things that we've come to understand, uh, you know, parlay into more cases. You know, so so many of so much of public health is around communication, and it does seem like a lot of the state restrictions are about that communicating to the public how serious this is. Um, we haven't seen a lot of enforcement of either the original stay at home order or we do, we don't really expect to. Is that a good thing? I mean, is this more about messaging than about actually cracking down on people's behavior in a kind of law enforcement way? It's a it's a little bit of both. I mean, the lessons of the public health world are that in uh, that that you really want engagement. You really want people to kind of believe that what they're being asked to do is reasonable and that uh, they're doing it for themselves and for their community and for their loved ones and for grandma and that trying to go out and enforce uh, this sort of thing by police action it just doesn't work in a democratic uh, society where people have a fair amount of free will and choice. They're going to do things that you'll push them underground. I mean, Maybe not true if this was North Korea, but we're not. And, and so it's a reasonable strategy. Now, if it's not working, then you've got to get tougher. And I think the hope all along is, you know, is, is this is not only each each of these restrictions is not only the thing in and of itself, but it's also sending a message. It's also sending a message, this is serious, we're going in the wrong direction, let's buck up and let's turn things around. And in the, in the case, certainly of Northern California, we've demonstrated that we've done unbelievably well so far and that we know how to do this and we can do it, uh, do it again. And it's kind of shaking us around a little bit and saying, let's take this seriously, let's turn it around, folks. By mentioning messaging, I think we have to talk about the fact that this announcement today was brought by Health and Human Ser uh, Services Secretary Mark Galley, not Governor Gavin Newsom, despite this being a big statewide announcement. Um, this comes a week after the governor has apologized for you know, having this dinner at the French Laundry restaurant with about a dozen people, questionable whether it was actually an outdoor uh, dining. To what extent do you think that that uh, you know, mistake has undermined his leadership and perhaps undermined his moral authority on these kinds of announcements. A little bit. I mean, it's 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 unfortunate. He shouldn't have done it. He knows he shouldn't have done it. It was, it was. Uh, you know, it's obvious that he's in a position where um, optics are really important. He's trying to send a message and demonstrate what good behavior looks like. I think for the for the last ten months, he's mostly done that. Um, and many governors, if you look around the country, have mostly not. And if you look at how the state of California has responded to this uh, crisis, I think it's pretty praiseworthy. I think we've done well. The standards that we have are reasonable. This was a screw up. I think he knows that. I think he has made that clear. And, you know, we're not doing this for him. We're doing it for us. We're doing it to be sure that we can that we don't get sick and die, or that we don't harm and kill our loved ones, that we eventually can, can open the economy and keep it open. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a mistake. And I, uh, he's, I think, quite, quite well aware of that. But I don't think it compromises his ability to, to tell us what we all need to be doing uh, that really is the right thing and is, uh, is perfectly, uh, you know, and cons completely consistent with the reasonable evidence-based public health rules. Well, yeah, I mean, it's proof he's human. He even Gavin Newsom has pandemic fatigue. Um, but we are coming into the holiday season, um, a time, especially with Thanksgiving, where people at the whole point of the holiday is to gather around a table and essentially do what's kind of the most dangerous thing you can do in a COVID world, right? Like break bread together, eat, drink, be inside an enclosed space. 
as you mentioned, I mean, the state has really been aggressive, I think, um, especially at the beginning compared to a lot of places. But we haven't heard health officials here or nationally say point blank, don't go home, cancel your plans. I mean, people like you might be saying that, but like it's not coming from public health officials. And I'm curious if you think that's a mistake or if there's a reason that even folks up to Dr. Anthony Fauci are so cautious about really trying to tell people what to do. Uh, I, the CDC today came out with the most direct uh, thing that they have come out with in 10 months, which was basically to tell people just that about Thanksgiving. Well, they said don't uh, travel, uh, right? But not don't gather, which is different. They pretty much said don't gather. Um, I'll have to look into the fine print. <laughs> but, but you know, in, in almost so many words, they were saying that this is dangerous. It's particularly dangerous now. and uh, And you shouldn't do it. And what was important about that was not only that uh, what they said, but that the CDC was reclaiming its mantle as a trusted public health entity that will that, uh, you know, that has really been taken over for the last 10 months by the Trump political apparatus and is beginning to come out of that shadow. It's interesting in light of some of the things that have the, the that the FDA has done about vaccines. You see both of those key public agencies beginning to flex their muscles again and beginning to say, you know, we understand what our what our role is in this pandemic. We we kind of they don't say this, but they know that we get that we haven't been doing it and they're beginning to assert their authority quite appropriately. It's clear that, you know, Thanksgiving is hard. Everybody wants to get together. But if you could uh, purposefully design an event to to get to make things worse, it would look like Thanksgiving, as you said, Marissa. It's just all wrong, and it happens at a time. Uh, you know, it's one of the things people don't don't fully understand. The risk of any encounter, whether it's flying or having a meal with someone or whatever your favorite encounter is, is a combination of the baseline risk of that, that thing. You know, how risky is the encounter? Multiplied by the risk that any of the people involved are infected and don't and mostly. Know it. And so the reason Thanksgiving is particularly risky now is that it's happening at a time where cases are skyrocketing and test positivity rates are skyrocketing around the country, making it reasonably likely if you take 10 strangers uh, or not strangers, family members, and you stick them around a table, and everybody takes their masks off and they have a, a jolly good time. There's a decent chance that one of them is having has the virus and doesn't even know it. So that's what's particularly uh, scary about this. And I think the CDC is coming out pretty strongly uh, you know, uh, in favor of being really, really careful right now. But you noted, I mean, it's 10 months into this. We have had a real lack of federal leadership. We have had such a scattershot approach across the states. Um, you know, within county counties, 58 counties in California, very different messages. I mean, how much do you see this latest spike and those quarter of a million deaths? I mean, just a staggering number as sort of not because of testing or tracing issues, but really because of the the mixed messages. I mean, it feels like we're all being asked to be the sort of public health uh, official in our own households. And what we've seen repeatedly is that everyone has such a different idea of what risk looks like. Well, I think the national response has been abysmal. I think that um, you could easily envision an alternative universe where there was strong federal leadership focused on the evidence and the science with clear guidelines about what the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do and terrific role modeling. And we've seen none of that at the federal level. And I think we've seen decent amount of that at the state level. Um, what could this have looked like nationally? My favorite example, because it's a real world example, it's not 
what Taiwan looks like or, or, or Hong Kong looks like. What could this have looked like nationally is San Francisco. So San Francisco, we've had a grand total of 156 deaths since this thing started. And if you take our per capita death rate and you say, uh, what would have happened if the country had that per capita death rate, we would be looking at about 60,000 deaths, not 250,000 deaths. So you'd be talking about 190,000 people who would be alive today if the country had mirrored what San Francisco has done. And you can, people kind of quibble a little bit, a bit about that and say, you know, more people here can work from home because there are so many tech workers and the weather is okay so people can be outside. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. But I think the main thing that happened in San Francisco and to some extent California, although not quite as well, is clear guidance, clear directives from the mayor, clear directives from the public health officials, and a citizenry, very importantly, it's not just what the leaders do, it's what the people do, a citizenry that basically gets it and says, okay, you know, this is not a hoax, it's not the flu, we get it, I'm scared of it, I'm gonna do what it takes to make things uh, as safe as possible. And, you know, so you couldn't get down to zero deaths. This is, this is a terrible thing, it was gonna be a terrible thing any way you cut it but it could have been far, far more benign and a whole lot of people alive today uh, if the federal government had responded differently. And you mentioned San Francisco. They've also resisted going as far as they could in business openings when you look at the kind of state qualifications that they have uh, given the spread in the city. I'm wondering, you know, when California had its big spike over the summer, you wrote, uh, quote, the shelf life of vigilance is only about three months. If it is, California and other parts of the country could be fated to live a deadly game of COVID-19 ping pong. And you turned out to be right. It, it, we've kind of seen that vigilance, uh, you know, kind of stretch for about three, four months in between waves. Kind of knowing that, is there a different approach that government officials should have to business openings other than this kind of gradient approach of always moving towards more openings, if there kind of is that limited frame of vigilance? Well, I thought June was really interesting because, you know, it, it, if you looked at March through through May, California was being uh, praised as being this incredible success story. And that was true. It, we, we were. Things started going sour in, in, in early June. And that's when I wrote that in The Atlantic. And if you look at what then happened was the Bay Area snapped back pretty quickly. I mean, it, 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 it plateaued and it came back down within a couple of weeks. Southern California mostly didn't. And what you see now is Los Angeles is the toll of COVID on Los Angeles is about the national average. Still nowhere near what happened in New York. It's, it, it, it's not, uh, it could have been far worse, but it's about at the national average. San Francisco is, is, is by far the of the top 20 largest cities in the country by far the one that has had the lowest toll so we kind of diverge and as you might expect california we treat it as one state but it could be a country in many other places so big so diverse so now i think you know now we're 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 five months after that everybody's that much more tired it will be interesting to see what happens now the curve looks pretty much like it looked in early june i am going to go out on a limb and say San Francisco and the Bay Area will do it again, that we will turn this thing around. We'll see if you look at the curve in San Francisco today, it's beginning, if you squint, you may believe the case rate is beginning to plateau. That that's, that's that may be uh, overly generous. <laughs> squint hard. Turning, that's, that's, like one, that's like one day of curve beginning to flatten. So I wouldn't make too much of it. We're not out of the woods by any means, but 
if, if, if history repeats itself, the, the Northern California will plateau out and come back down. And I worry more about Southern California. Uh, we'll have to see. I think that the, the differences now are the weather and, and Christmas, meaning that, you know, if we turn it around now, if you look at the first two surges, it was March, April, then better. It was June, July, then better. Is this one going to be, you know, October, November and better? Or because it's winter everywhere, um, is it going to last through the entire winter? So mm. I think that's an open question. This could it's already worse than the first two and could be much worse. The second is that is such a national surge that we haven't closed our borders. So the fact that the Midwest is going crazy has an influence on us as long as there are flights coming to SFO from Chicago and other parts of the country. There are cases that are being imported. And the third difference is the vaccine news, which may may push up against the fatigue. And I hope it does. That's a message I've been trying to send, which is I get that everybody's tired. Everybody wants us to go away. But it feels a hell of a lot easier to say to people, you know, uh, buck up and see if we can get through the next few months, because if you do, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, as opposed to buck up and we'll be at this surge thing again in another three or four months. There's a decent chance we won't be. There's a decent chance if we can get through the next three or four months, we'll be sort of toward the middle or even the end of the, uh, the tunnel and we'll be looking at happier days. Happier days. All right. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we will continue our conversation with the chair of the Department of Medicine and UCSF, Dr. Bob Wachter. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati, and we've been talking with Dr. Bob Wachter. He is not only the head of UCSF's Department of Medicine, he's also a prolific tweeter. And doctor, one of the things you've talked about, you know, I mentioned earlier that we're kind of all being asked to make these decisions for our own households about risk and, and, and managing that risk as we have tried to keep at least parts of our economy and, and lives open. Um, and you've written and talked a lot about the idea of, of the trade-off between joy and risk. And and the need for us to to think about that. Can you just talk a little bit about what what you're thinking about in your own life and kind of how you're encouraging people to make those um, very difficult decisions in terms of do I you know go to this outside event or do I send my kids back to daycare or whatever it is? 
Yeah, it's really tricky. I mean, we've we've all lived through 10 months and uh, part of what's so stressful is like every day you've got to make about 20 different decisions and weigh risks and benefits. And the risk part feels really tricky because, you know, it may be the risk is low, but if I get it, I might die. And and so, you know, and you're trying to weigh all the probabilities and do it in a neutral way. It's just a really hard thing to do. If, if you're a physician like I am, we're sort of trained in this. Uh, you know, it's part of how we think about diagnosis and sending a test or not to kind of weigh all these probabilities. But even for us, it's pretty it's it's pretty exhausting. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to go out of the house in the morning, there's risk. If you're going to drive somewhere, there's risk. If you get an airplane, there's risk. So we, we do this all the time. The example I've given for myself is I had to decide whether to visit my parents in Florida. My dad's 90, mom's uh, 84, and my father has a fairly bad disease. And I thought it was pretty likely that he would not make it another year. And so there really was a decision, do I want to see him alive again or not? And I decided after weighing the risks of airplane flights and all of that, I would do it as safely as I possibly could, but I would do it. And in doing it, as I was getting on the plane, I said to myself, if I get sick and ultimately die from having done this, how would I feel? And the answer is bad, <laughs> but I would not feel regretful. In other words, I, you know, looking straight at all of the risks, I think this is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And to sort of be too doctrinaire and, and say, you, you know, nobody should take any risk. That's just not the way life works. Yeah. And on the micro level, while we have these millions of choices and decisions being made every day by millions of Americans, we're also going through a transition in power in the White House. This comes at a kind of a critical time during the pandemic. When you think about the transition that's happening now uh, before Joe Biden takes office in January, what do you see as the greatest risks well, the, there are two. Uh, one is that we've got two more months of the status quo, and the status quo is terrible. I mean, it, it truly is what's going on in the Midwest is staggering. It really is the equivalent of what we saw in New York in March, uh, except it feels worse in a way because we know so much more. I mean, it did not and does not have to happen. And, you know, and tens and hundreds of thousands of people will die, I believe, unnecessarily because of of poor leadership. The other risk is I have really knowing the people on the Biden advisory group and knowing the way the vice president operates, I have great confidence that we will snap back to a an alternative universe that is guided by science and evidence and is reasonable and prudent and with good, strong communication to people. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's got to be a good handoff. There's got to be a transition. And the biggest risk in the handoff is with the spectacular news about vaccines, now we start a different part. We now, the science has done its thing. We know these vaccines work incredibly well. Now we have to do a really complicated logistical uh, you know, act two, which is get vaccines into the shoulders of 300 million people. And that's really complicated. And so, you know, if we just start that work on January 20th, it's gonna delay things by a month or two. It really needs to start now. So there's some risk that happens in that handoff. And you mentioned kind of the just the messaging, that kind of bully pulpit that Joe Biden will have as president. Is that still a thing? Does that still matter? I mean, I think about the information that we've had on risk mitigation with coronavirus being out there for months. I mean, we've, we've learned about indoor transmission risk in April. Are there still people in your mind that would benefit from hearing President Joe Biden you know, deliver that message? 
think so. I mean, I really, I, I, the fact that something as simple as mass became this political football and, uh, and became, you know, whether you were wearing one or not became emblematic of what team you were on is crazy and, and has cost a whole lot of lives. Um, you know, there are hardcore people who will never believe that this is real, it's not a hoax. But even those folks, you know, we're past the early days where this was only a disease of blue states. I mean, it is pulverizing red parts of the country. And so, you know, I mean, there's a small group of people who you will never convince they, they, they live in their, their information universe. But I think they're probably, you know, as I say in the political world, there are persuadables out there. And I think those persuadables have seen this is real. And to see a president role modeling the right things to do, to see a CDC that has becomes what it normally should be, which is a world-class organization communicating the right and wrong things to do, I think will make a huge difference. And we're now moving to a stage where it's going to move from convincing people about distancing and masks and now convincing people about vaccines. Well, and yeah, let's talk we about that. <laughs> for, yeah, we have an opportunity for a fresh start there. Now, will that get politicized? Of course. Will there be partisan viewpoints on that? Of course. But I think at least, you know, we can start fresh and say, and, and, and the, the difference on vaccines might be that Trump and his colleagues and team, I think, are quite proud of vaccines. Mm -hmm. I think rightly take credit for having gotten that part right. They got everything else yeah. wrong, but they got part, that part right. So I think there's a possibility at least that there'll be some consensus on vaccines and that will be, a, that will be hugely important because people have to agree to take them. Right, and we do know that that is, um, th there's gonna be challenges with that, but I wanna, because both on the left and right, there are people who don't believe in vaccines or have problems with them. But I, I do want to ask you, though, about the logistical challenges. We've seen Governor Gavin Newsom talk about a task force here to both look at the efficacy um, and safety of the vaccines, but also how to distribute it. I mean, this is clearly a huge, huge logistical challenge. What steps need to be taken by the Biden incoming administration and also by our government here in California to make sure that we do that in, better than we've done everything else in this pandemic. Well, I hope the governor and the other states that announced that they were going to have their own separate review of efficacy, I hope they take that down. Mm. I, I, I could have seen, I think it was legitimate to worry about that a month or so ago when it appeared that the FDA had been massively politicized and was making decisions that were that were wrong. And, uh, they, you know, they did that with hydroxychloroquine. They did that with convalescent plasma. There was not sufficient evidence. And it was clear that the Trump administration had taken over the, that decision making. I think the FDA has proven in the last month that they have uh, resisted those political pressures and everything they've done in the last six to eight weeks has given very clear signals that they're going to make a perfectly rational decision about vaccines the way they always have. And so if we put in a new process that delays vaccines by a few weeks, that will actually cost lives. So I don't think it's necessary anymore. I do think that the distribution of vaccines is going to be partly federal and partly state. And there may just be a big boatload of vaccines that's delivered to the state of California. And the state then has to figure out how do you get it to San Francisco versus Reading? How do you get it uh, to the first groups that are in line, which are going to be healthcare workers and older people at high risk. Uh, one vaccine needs special freezer storage. The other one doesn't. You need to develop a tracking system so that it knows that you got the Pfizer vaccine first time. So when it's time to get your second shot, you get the Pfizer one and not the Moderna one. It's all pretty complicated. And I, I think, you know, that's all going to start happening pre-Biden. It's largely under Trump. So it really is going to be up to the states to develop a system where they can roll that out effectively and safely. 
I think California certainly has the resources and the capability and the know-how to do it, but that's the thing we should be working on, not on reapproving the vaccines. And you mentioned, you know, the Trump administration has gotten a lot of credit for the work they've done on vaccine development. What do you think made that so much more successful, I guess, so far than their approach on testing? I mean, does it come down to those logistical hurdles that you talk about are yet to come in vaccine distribution? Yeah, I mean, I think partly because it wasn't particularly politically uh, charged or complicated. Uh, It mostly is a matter of money and money going to a big business, which the Republicans generally like, uh, you know, they're okay with. And it was it was really a matter of resourcing it appropriately and then giving the companies the running room to do what they do well. So what the Trump administration needed to do was basically fund it adequately. And I think they were smart to say for 10 or 20 billion dollars, Seems, it used to seem like a lot of money, but it's a trivial amount of money if it brings the, the, this the, this crisis to an end, you know, six months sooner. And that's really what they did. You know, where they tried to muck it up was when they started politicizing the FDA process. And luckily, there was enough pushback on that, that that did not happen. So I think when you look back on this, you will say the Trump administration mismanaged virtually everything. But on this one, I think they got it right. All right. UCSF's Dr. Bob Wachter. You can find him at Twitter at Bob underscore Wachter, W-A-C-H-T-E-R. We don't usually throw out the Twitter handles of our guests, but I feel like they need to know where to find you, doctor. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for Thanks for your time. And that is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Thanks to my co-host Guy Marzarati for helping out these past two weeks and producing the show. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M Lagos. Stay safe out there and try not to go home for Thanksgiving. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.